is kind of part of the, the deal, but we don't necessarily enjoy it. And what I hope is that after our time today, like God would reframe not just our perspective of waiting on him, but our practices as we wait on him. Because right now, for by and large, most of us, we treat waiting on the Lord like, like that gift that we kind of know is necessary, but we receive reluctantly. Socks at Christmas. I know it's necessary, but ah, come on, fam, like iPhone 14, what's up? Yes? <laughs> In Jesus' name. <laughs> Let me do it. Gifts giving is necessary. Go ahead and start preparing for what's coming. But uh, the more I just sit with this text, the more God has just pressed this on me, man. There are some things we learn and experience in waiting that we can't outside of it. And I just, like, like the Lord says, I'm going to give people this tremendous gift that's simple, but it's, like, saturated with such significance. And it's because there's something I want them to learn. There's something I want them to experience. There's someone I want them to become that is not going to be attained apart from this season or this moment of waiting. And as we work through this text, would God press that into us more? Would he reframe our perspective? And then would he press us into a place where we receive the gift of waiting with gladness? And then we practice some healthy things as we wait on the Lord. Uh, the passage itself is really a picture of, of two exemplars of faith, the gray hairs, and we need to learn from them. They have much to teach us. They have much to teach us about the plan of God, and they have much to teach us about waiting well on the Lord. And so the flow of our time is, I just want to look at their words, I want to look at their lives, and then I'm going to close with the grit, all right? What can we learn from their, their words that can instruct us, shape us, move us? And then look at their lives and then close with, with the grid. Read with me. We'll read it straight through and then take it bit by bit. Um, Luke chapter 2 starts like this. Um, and, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord that is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, we talked about that before, and it just it clues us into the station of Mary and ultimately the station of her son who would be born Jesus. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Make notes, underline that, start at. Next week, I think we have a special surprise. Thank you, Pastor Chip, for that. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. First of all, you can't just take somebody's baby like that. Can we just affirm? It's a little random. However, spirit of God, man, stuff has happened. The spirit moves in here. Don't grab anybody's kids. No, I just want to make sure 
Family Sunday is always wild. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in her years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting prayer, with fasting and prayer, night and day, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. I'm consistently blown away by how subversive Luke's gospel is. The intentionality of Luke to reshuffle the deck of our faith and reframe what it means to be the people of God, to center what God is doing in his strength, in his power, in a way that is mind-blowing. It consistently presses against the imagination. What we have here are two more examples of public affirmation regarding the greatness of Jesus. What we have here are two more examples of lives that are worth celebrating, and not just celebrating, but emulating, modeling their exemplars. And it's subversive because the, the, the people that he chose, again, are those who are easily discarded, the gray hairs. But thinking about this a lot as I'm getting older, and you know, the last few years have been wild, Nobody woke up and saw 2020 coming in a global pandemic. I just remember like all of the conversation that happened early on in the pandemic that was very troubling for me. Because what was in front of us, what everybody everywhere on the planet was staring at was this disease that literally carried death in a particular way for a particular people, the vulnerable among us were the ones who were at the center of this thing. I just remember like some of the rhetoric that was coming out around particularly people who have gray hairs and how they're like, well, they've lived their lives. It's time for me to live mine. I didn't grow up with my grandparents. They died when I was young. But I just, that's why I cherish the fact that my kids are growing up with theirs. But man, I was like, wait a second. What type of ethic are we saying? That the vulnerable among us have no utility, have no dignity, particularly the elderly, and it hurt. But it's reflective of how we tend to operate. 
Whenever somebody advances in years, we kind of say, well, there goes your corner, you go over there. And if you have gray hairs, you know that, you feel that, you sense that. Do I still have something to offer? There's that LeBron commercial that's out right now, LeBron versus Father Time. And some of the time, Father Time is whipping him. It's Jason Momoa with the, you know Jason Momoa? Aquaman. Kyle Drago. And so sometimes sometimes he's whipping um, LeBron, and sometimes LeBron is whipping him. And I just thought about that as, as this passage was thick on me. It's like, man, Father Time is actually not our enemy, Christian. He has no power over us. What's the worst that could happen? Death. Then we're with Jesus forevermore. And Father Time actually could be our friend. Because as we age, God puts in front of us the opportunity for wisdom and growth and maturity to be seasoned by grace. And I look at the lives of these two exemplars that would be easily discarded in our current cultural moment. And I just want to say to us, the Brook Church, don't do that. Don't do that. Their lives are powerful. Luke is subversive. We can learn from their words, both Simeon and Anna. Now, Anna, her words aren't explicitly stated, but we know that she's speaking, one, because of the, the title associated with her prophetess. Talked about that a few weeks ago. Not necessarily like future telling or predictive as much as foretelling. This is, what's, this is, this is foretelling. This is who God is. It's, it's proclamation oriented. Furthermore, what she says at the end, what she's proclaiming is the redemption of, of Jerusalem. You're waiting for it. It's coming. It's here. Christ is born. We can learn from her words. Simeon's words are explicit. It's at least a few things, but for time, I'm just going to highlight and then keep it moving. What his words reinforce that we can learn from. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He said all of this is about waiting, the consolation of the Lord. He's talking about this idea of God comforting his people. This is rooted in Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort your people. And then God moves to comfort his people by painting a picture of who he is and what he's doing and what he'll do in the future. It's very powerful. And so it's, this, this is framed by this idea of consolation, God, God comfort. We're waiting for the comfort of your people. Goes on to say salvation. I, I, I'm seeing the salvation of the Lord i.e. he's joining consolation and salvation. God, we are waiting that you would make good on your promise to redeem and to renew. That's what he's he's painting for us. In other words, God, we're waiting for you to be faithful. And at the gate, his words reinforce the faithfulness of God. Now, Lord, now, you've been faithful. Shorthand. What I love about this is while there is a general sense of God's faithfulness that we're meant to see here, God, you've been faithful to fulfill promises of old. Again, this is the background music of this portion of Luke. We cannot miss how personal this is. Zach, like, this guy is hanging on a personal promise. 
You have spoken to me that I'm not going to die until I see the Lord's Christ. He received the word from the Lord. That may freak some of us out. Some of us are like, yes, time to talk about it. Not yet, not fully. What we know is God has spoken to this man in an undeniable way. And he's been hanging on to it. And God has said, oh yeah, your wait is over. Lord, now I can go in peace. I like it. His words reinforce God's faithfulness. His words don't just reinforce God's faithfulness. His words reinforce Gentile inclusion into the plan of salvation. This is verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is consistent. This is consistent. Luke is going to bang this. So I try to play the guitar and try to teach myself the guitar, like at many points in my life. One of those points was in high school. There was a song that came out by a guy by the name of Tyrese, and it was Signs of Blah, Blah, Blah. And so I play, um, I try to play those chords, and I, I, I learned how to do it. Now, some of you are like, you can't play the guitar. I didn't say I could play the guitar. I just learned how to play those chords way back when. Forgot all of it. But for like about six months, I just kept playing the same chords to every song. So every song sounded like Tyrese. It was super bad. This is what he, he just keeps playing the same chords, man. Gentiles are part of the plan of God. The unlikely are part of the plan of God. God is faithful in his promises. We, gotta, we just got to see this. This reinforcement of Gentile inclusion into the plans of salvation is so meaningful and so rich. And I feel like our current cultural moment, I want to harp on this for just a second. Anybody who is not ethnically a Jew is a Gentile. And God has said that inclusion into the plan of salvation extends beyond ethnicity. That is powerful. That is rich. And it has always been the case. This is Isaiah chapter 25 where he's saying death is going to be swallowed up and we like that. It's going to get quoted in Revelation. But in route to talking about a future day, he's not just talking about what's absent, death pain, sorrow. He's talking about what's present, this table for all people, that they would eat together. It's meaningful. And the reason why I want to harp on this just a little bit is because consistently, consistently, and I'm not throwing shade at anybody, but it's like clockwork. Every three to four years, Somebody who is African-American with a platform tries to promote heresy by saying that primarily the people of God, the Jews, were black. And I'm just going to say this. I get the need for black dignity. I get it. But with the need for black dignity, the reality of it not move us to embrace ideas that are antithetical to the scriptures we claim. Christian, listen to me. My pastoral journey is filled with black and brown people walking away from Jesus, departing into ideas that are dangerous, they're destructive, and they're false. But the starting point is sincerity. It's a desire for dignity. And I just want to say, Hebrew, Israelite, 
faith practices are actually not true. And you need to hear me say that, okay? And in this, this desire, this journey for black dignity, listen to me, not to be heavy-handed, get a guide that is actually good. Let me rattle off a few of those. Jude 3 with Lisa Fields. The work they do, par excellent. Chef kiss. Cam Triggs. He's actually putting on an apologetic conference in January. The work he does, chef's kiss. Rasul Berry works for Our Daily Bread, also with crew. He's a pastor out in New York in Brooklyn, part of the Bridge Church with also James. The work they do, chef's kiss. Good guides who are honest and clear and able to bring in the full weight of history and the text to real-time issues in particular communities. So that was extra, but it needed to be said because this is a consistent plan of God. We cannot with any degree of integrity exclude people from the plan of God based on their ethnicity. We can't do that. It's a false gospel. Light for the revelation of the Gentiles. He reinforces that. Simeon's words also reinforce the public affirmation of Jesus as king. This is verse 31. This is also Anna's words in verse 34 through 35, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This matters because the Christian faith was not rooted in a dream. The Christian faith did not occur in a cave. It was birthed from the life of Jesus Christ in public view. Everybody saw it. People interacted with it. Some said nah. Some said yes. But we cannot do to Jesus what he didn't do to himself. We just kind of tuck him away somewhere. Consistently, there's this public affirmation about this man, Jesus Christ. He reinforces that with his words. They teach us about the faithfulness of God. Let's move. They teach us about the faithfulness of God, but they also teach us about what waiting well looks like. Again, waiting for the consolation of Israel, that salvation. What he invites us to own is that waiting on the Lord is the heritage of his people. Say that again. Waiting on the Lord is the heritage of his people. It is our story. It is what we're born into. We are born into this rich continuum of waiting on God that is sometimes super frustrating. But it is our heritage. Generally, if you're a Christian, you're waiting that God would make good on his promise for salvation. That's how the scriptures talk. The scriptures talk about our salvation three ways particularly. In the past, in the present, and in the future, the tenses of salvation. They say that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will ultimately be saved. We were justified, we were saved, we were declared righteous and brought near by the grace of God. We are being sanctified, the ongoing act of being made more like Jesus by the grace of God. Being made more like Jesus is this idea that we're growing into who God already says that we are. If you're a parent, you know this very well. You buy shoe sizes four times too big because you know what your kids do. They just grow. And you're like, man, why are you still growing? Amen. 
So you buy it knowing that they're going to grow into it. This is how the scriptures talk. 1 Corinthians to the saints. This church that was jacked up. And he says the saints, their present identity that they're growing into. Ongoing work of being made more like Jesus and glorification. To be glorified, we will be saved. It's the culmination of grace. We will inherit the fullness of the promise and the work of God. New body, new heaven, new earth, it's coming. And so we're waiting. This is our heritage. This is our heritage. If you're a Christian, generally speaking, you are in a posture of waiting for God to bring this about in its full. Right now, if you're a Christian, you've been declared righteous. If you, were, if you died, you'd be with Jesus forever. We have evidence of this thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, he didn't have time to do all of these good works. Sure did it. Praise God, it wasn't based on his works, but on grace. So you're declared righteous. If you die today, you're with God forevermore. But we're growing into something. We're growing into it. And one day we will get the fullness of what God has promised. There's a general sense of waiting. Everybody is born into. It's our heritage. But there's some specific ways that you know God has been calling you to wait. And you know that how you wait on anything is largely dependent on who you're waiting on and what you're waiting for. This is why Miami doesn't help us at all. Have an illustration, but for time's sake, I'm going to put it at the end. Jesus' name. Does not help us. God bless Miami. Let's look at some explicit stuff and implicit things about waiting well that their lives teach us that their lives teach us, and then we'll close with this grid. One thing that their lives teach us is that waiting well entails, it entails being convinced and changed by future hope. Being convinced of and changed by future hope. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, There's this crew of people who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. There's this future experience that is absolutely transforming them in the here and now. That happens for us all, not necessarily in a spiritual sense, but there's a gravity to the future. It's like a magnet. We're drawn to it. It moves us in profound ways, and and there's this hopefulness, not optimism, but strong confidence that is moving them. Attached to that, what we see is, 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 their, is their hope is not in their faithfulness. It's in God's. The Lord bring it about consolation. The Lord's Christ, your salvation, God doing the work. Psalm 105 helps us. Glory in his name. Let the Hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. This is this present action. But look, 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 look at the tense shift. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. See what he's doing there? He's moving them to consider what God has done in the past, God's past faithfulness. 
as fuel for our present and future confidence. God's past faithfulness is the primary fuel for our present and future confidence. They are waiting well because they are convinced and changed by future hope. Next thing that I just see here that's just grabbing me. Waiting well entails a preoccupying pursuit of faithfulness. Waiting well on the Lord entails a preoccupying pursuit of faithfulness. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Luke 2. 36 through 37, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow she was, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. To persist in that which is good, true, noble, right. Faithfulness. To persist in that who God is, faithfulness. To persist in that which God says to do, faithfulness. And their lives embody this preoccupying pursuit of faithfulness, particularly Anna. Guys, we look at Anna's life and and she's not... Like, she wouldn't be celebrated right now. We would say, what's wrong with you? We would say that there's something deficient with your identity. Maybe you don't look good and you can't get chose or keep somebody. Because her life is embodying this sense of celibacy. She has become a eunuch. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 19, where we're able to actually see some of Jesus' sexual ethics. We don't like to think that Jesus has sexual ethics, but he does. He communicates them quite frequently, actually. And he gives this sense about, like, divorce that's really interesting because he, he, he just absolutely shatters the, the sin in the hearts of men to treat women as tools, and his disciples understand what he's doing. And they're like, well, shoot, nobody should, get, nobody should get married. And Jesus doesn't say, well, that's a bad interpretation. He says, yeah, no, I get it. This is a hard saying. And then he goes on to say this. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So a eunuch is somebody who cannot express the fullness of their sexual identity, whether by circumstance or choice. Notice what he did there. Some from birth. I like that. The biology doesn't mix all the way. Some by others. If you were going to be in the king's court, you often were castrated. And then some by choice who have said that, yeah, I have the opportunity to express certain things, particularly as it relates to my sexual life, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, oh, by the way, that's what I did. That Jesus became a eunuch for our sake. And so what Luke is cluing us into with this woman is that she was doing the same. 
And that's powerful for me. Because that is showing a preoccupation with God and being faithful and not what everybody else says. And what's crazy, what's absolutely crazy, is God honors that type of faithfulness, people. Isaiah 56, he says this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from, my, from his people, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You see that? See how God is kind and generous with our story and our obedience and our faithfulness and the sacrifice? I just want to say this and then move on. God has not forgotten your faithfulness and he will not forsake his. This is 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He hasn't forgotten your faithfulness, and he will not forsake his. In due time, in due time. It's the refrain that keeps coming back. In due time, in due time, in due time. So we wait. Their life is powerful. I want to pivot for time's sake. Who we are on the other side of faithfulness, like sustained faithfulness, man, I long to see that. I long to see it, yeah. To be 84 and 90 and still going, man. And for my seasoned saints in here who stick around with this young church in many ways, thank you for your model, man. Thank you for a picture of a future worth pursuing, of sustained faithfulness. The thing that's been getting me is Eugene Peterson's A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I would commend that book to anybody. I've said it multiple times. I read it every year. It is one of the most transformative books I've ever read in my life. This is a long quote that's going to move us to close. He says this. He says, religion in our time has been captured by the Taurus mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some would have bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion, plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and newest Zen, faith healing, human potential, parapsychology, successful living, choreography in the chancel, Armageddon. We'll try anything until something else comes along. I don't know what it's been like for pastors in cultures in previous centuries, 
but I am quite sure that for a pastor in Western culture at the dawn of the 21st century, the aspect of world that makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult is what Gore Vidal said. Today's passions for the immediate and the casual. Everyone is in a hurry. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. This is the air we breathe. It's the air we breathe, guys. And so we're not set on a trajectory that looks at the future and then reverse engineers it into the now with patience. We rush and we race. But this is also why this last aspect of them waiting well is meaningful. They wait well because they're empowered by the Spirit of God. Three times in these three verses, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Empowerment. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you, and he gives you the power to wait well. Here's the grid. The perspective in front of us is this idea that waiting on God well is intended to be transformative and life-giving. God's not petty. You know, you be in traffic and somebody honks on you, you know, and then you go slower. Oh, okay. You want to rush me? Got you. Sin. (laughs) Petty type of people force their pace on others. That's not how God operates. God slows us down and forces the pace because he's meaning for us to experience something powerful and transformative. The practice is to establish rhythms of reminder and reflection. This is the entire story of the people of God. Their calendar was a testament to God building rhythm and reminder into their lives. How many times a year did they sacrifice lambs? Upwards of 1,200. So that when John the Baptist, we're coming to him in a few weeks, says, now behold the Lamb of God, something is supposed to click. So the practice is establishing rhythms and reminder of a reminder and reflection of God's faithfulness. We rehearse grace. The picture from the other side is that we would be the people seasoned and strengthened by what dependence produces. Because the only way we wait well on God is through his Holy Spirit, which is dependence. 